Pura Borinda. Pura Borinda. Baba he. Do you remember that? So, so here's some Russian. Why'd your voice go up to say it, though? Because that's my Russian voice. Until what time? All right, all right, all right. Ready? No, no, no. I need a silence. Come on, come on. I don't have time. I don't have time. I got a family. Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. Last week, I sat down with Justin Lee to discuss J.R.R. Tolkien's famous essay, lecture-turned-essay on fairy stories. This week, we want to take some of those ideas and we want to look at a particular fairy story, one that's a little more contemporary, written, I believe, in 1979? Yep, 1979. 1979. And can you give me the original German title of this fairy story? Um Gosh dang it. Die und Inlische Geschichte. Okay, do it again. Die und Inlische Geschichte. Oh. And you and I would, of course, know this as The Never Ending Story, yes, written sir. by Michael Inda. Now, Justin is a teacher of literature and writing at UCI, UC Irvine, where I used to teach as well. And he is teaching and has taught this text in conjunction with Tolkien's On Fairy Stories. Yeah. And so we thought, okay, this would be a great thing to just sort of segue from our previous discussion on the nature of fairy tales, fairy stories, uh, Tolkien's understanding of that, all the things that we laid out, and now maybe apply or direct some of those into a, a contemporary or more contemporary story uh, that has its own merits but is very much using um, Tolkien's uh, structures and, uh, and themes. So... How do you, when you teach this text, how do you introduce this to your students? What, what's the best way we could be brought in by you to the never-ending story? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the first thing that I do with them is have them read on fairy stories. Okay, wonderful. To, so they really yeah. do read that. Yeah, so they read front. that. Uh, that establishes a lens um, through which we can interpret the story because Michael Linda uh, very obviously had read on fairy stories and loved it. Mm. and loved Tolkien and was very influenced by him. And, you know, which is, again, you know, for the 20th century, The Lord of the Rings is the biggest piece of meat in the pot. Right. And the most uh, most impactful, most influential story of the 20th century. Yeah. Bar none. Yeah. Yeah, it's probably yeah. not close. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there may be eight people who were inspired to become writers when they read Ulysses, mm. and probably only eight. 8,000 otherwise who were inspired by Tolkien yeah. and Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And and a m several million others who were inspired too, but didn't get past a few pages right. <laughs> um, of, of writing. Anyway. So uh, now let me just ask you this. As a as a noob uh, to the Neverending News story, am I, is it bad? I have, I have since read it, um, mm -hmm. but recently uh, for the first time, 
And is it bad if we have in our minds a very strange movie uh, reel of the never-ending story in our heads and we think, oh, I thought that was a movie. I thought that was a movie with the weird dog thing. <laughs> oh, it is. Is that bad or good? Or in, For me, it it's good. Matter? For me, it's good. This is your childhood. Yeah, this is yeah. my childhood. And don't. Falcor? Falcor. Okay. The luck dragon. The luck dragon. So. One I'm time. not denigrating. I'm asking. No, no, you if don't. We you came don't to no. the show, you, and we're looking in our heads at this '80s movie. Yeah, 1984 um, came out 19- the year I was born. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, this is all providential, this is like man. You, it this was is all the providential. of Justin. Okay, so if in 1984 we have this Falcor with this big, weird, like animatronic puppet dog, yeah. Um, yeah. you're saying all good. That's all. That's all good. I mean, all there good. are definitely differences and compressions. Okay, but uh, keep in mind that. That uh, movie only covers the first third of the story. Okay, that's huge. Okay, yeah. and I didn't know that. So I was yeah. like, oh, I think I know this from the movie. And then it kept going and going yeah. and going. I couldn't believe it's it. It's like, oh, I, we're on page like 120. Yeah. And there's like another nearly 300 pages Yes, same experience of reading The Once and Future King by T.H. White. Yeah. Had no idea that The Sword and the Stone, the Disney movie I grew up with, was book one of four <laughs> books that comprised The Once and Future King. And by the way, Once and Future King, one of the best things I've ever read in my whole entire life. So I highly recommend that fairy story. Um, now, Justin, you are teaching this story to us yeah. you're introducing this to us we have we have had a discussion about on fairy stories with tolkien we are primed we have ideas in our minds about the cauldron yeah. of story mm-hmm. we've had ideas in our minds about sub-creation of mm-hmm. eucatastrophe all sorts of different things primary and secondary world okay primary and secondary world uh so primary world is is the one we're in right now Yep. Secondary world is the one created by the artist, the, the fairy realm. Is that is yeah, that? Well, so in the story, okay, the, within the story, within the story, the primary world is the world like our world. Okay, and then the secondary world is the the world of enchantment. Okay, is, so is, is fairy. Peter Pan or John Wendy Michael in London, primary world, yep. uh, Neverland, secondary Correct. world. Okay. So uh, now, where do you take your students next when we're getting into this? Yeah, so so we you know we start with Tolkien's essay, then I have them read his uh, short story that he wrote uh, the same time that he was uh, writing on fairy stories. Uh, short story is called Leaf by Niggle. Leaf by Niggle, and this is where would we find this? This is in one of like the Tolkien readers, I think. Yeah, it's it's around. You can find it online for free as okay, well. Okay, there you go. A little PDF. Um, but uh, the book I have is lovely. It's Tree and Leaf, and it has um, on fairy stories, Leaf by Niggle, and his famous poem, uh, Myth- Mythopoeia. I think that's still in print, too. That's yeah, a, yeah. And that's a beautiful edition. Yeah, so it, Tree and Leaf is the text you have, and it's included in there. Mm-hmm. And it's you say it's a short story. So it's not an essay. A right. short story. It's a short story, and it's, uh, it's very clearly... Um, highly allegorical and it is about a painter named Niggle who is painting a tree and this is like his life's work and and Niggle is not an incredible painter but he is incredibly good at painting leaves and each leaf is sui generis on this tree and what does that mean it's 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 of its own kind uh, it's singular, and but uh, so, so this is what he's doing, and he is always trying to find time to create his masterpiece, and time is always evading him, and he knows he has to go on a journey, and 
he keeps putting off the journey for as long as he can. He doesn't want to go on the journey, even though he has to. And because he wants to finish his work first. And he has, a, he has this neighbor, Parrish, who um, is always bugging him uh, with stupid things. And Parrish is kind of this weird, fastidious person who doesn't care a lot for other people. And he, he is an imposition for Niggle. Um, one day Parrish, um, comes over to say that his, his wife is sick and they need to call the doctor, but he doesn't have a bicycle, um, and he can't leave his wife. And so Niggle agrees to go in the rain on his bike, uh, mm-hmm. into town as they live out in the country to get the doctor. And when he does this, being out in the rain, he gets sick and gets back and finds out that. Uh, Parrish's wife wasn't actually all that sick after all. Um, but Nagel gets really sick. And this impedes his work, and he can't get anything done. And then um, the, uh, a carriage arrives, um, and it's time for him to go on his journey. And he's told by a house inspector that comes by to, to look at his house and check on the state of affairs that it's time for your journey. The, uh, the carriage is outside. Get in the carriage. And the carriage takes him and takes him to um, a train station. And he goes eventually into some strange place that's like a hospital hmm. and, a, and a workhouse and a psychiatric ward all rolled into one. And, and he's there and... He's recuperating, but he's not recuperating. It just keeps dragging on. And then they make him start working and working and working and working. And it becomes clear after a while that Niggle has died, that the journey was death, that, you know, that he's been putting off for a long time. And it, it finally comes. He dies, and he's in purgatory. Um, and he's there for centuries. Um, but uh, the text deals with those centuries in a very compressed way, uh, as we've come to expect of things that happen in fairy in the other world. Time moves differently. And eventually, um, these voices uh, that seem to be in charge of things, but he never sees you know, the bodies that bear the voices, um, eventually someone champions him and says, you know, he, he's changed and he, he doesn't think of himself anymore. And he can move on to the next stage. Hmm. And so they send, uh, they send him on. And by train, he's dropped off at a station in this, in this beautiful country um, area. And he begins to walk through the woods and comes to a clearing. And all of a sudden, he encounters his tree the tree that he had been painting in life. And, but it was real, and it was finished. And he's kind of overwhelmed. Um, story goes on, and Parrish arrives too, apparently having died. And Niggle discovers that the land around the tree is unfinished, that he needs to create and finish, you know, this, this space of the afterlife. And so he begins doing it, but he can't do it alone. He has to have Parrish with him. Parrish is meant to help him complete his work. And story story rolls forward. Um, they work together, and 
um, you know, complete the land. And then Nigel eventually goes on into the distant mountains that he sees um, because they're calling him. And he knows that he has to journey and quest into the mountains. And the story ends there. And so, so this is this kind of perfect unfolding of Tolkien's On Fairy Stories mm. um, of escape uh, and recovery, uh, where Niggle, um, you know, goes through this, you know, this perilous, difficult experience of this kind of like spiritual gulag <laughs> that is purgatory. And, and on the other side, because he's learned to not think of himself, mm. uh, he's able to see his neighbor um, as a good in itself. He's able to see the goodness that was there all along mm. and, and the usefulness to him and to his mission, his vocation that had always been there. And, and so it, you know, it, it comes out, you know, it's this very, it's just this perfect distillation of Tolkien's theory of how fantasy works. Mm. And it's also his retelling of the allegory of the cave. I was going to say, it started to sound like that at certain points in your, in your reflection. And we, there was an earlier episode, I think it was on the history of freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably would have been part one. No, it might've been part two in which we recounted the allegory of the cave. But since that has been a while and I'm, I'm surprised anyone's listening to anything at all, but let's assume they did not <laughs> listen to that. Uh, one, could you, could you give me a, a summary of the allegory of the cave? Plato's famous allegory of what the acquisition or the development of, of wisdom, the soul, of knowledge, yeah. of the good. Yeah, so um, in a nutshell, the allegory is um, you from birth have been inside a dark cave, um, shackled in place, you're back against a wall, um, other people to your left and right but that you can't see. Ahead of you there is a wall, and on that wall are shadows, um, figures of, of things you would experience uh, in the world, trees, people rocks, etc., horses. Um, and this is all you know of the world. This is all you experience is the shadows. One day, maybe the, your shackles have rusted through and you're able to get out uh, of the cave. And you, you get up and start moving for the first time, realize, oh, I have a body. Uh, these bodies are things and that exist. <laughs> and you... Um, begin to walk around in the cave. And you see up behind you, you see there's a a large fire uh, that's roaring. And there are all these people up there who are moving cut-out figures in front of the fire and projecting shadows onto the wall. Uh, And these shadows, you discover, you know, are the the world that you thought you knew. And that world is being controlled and manipulated by other people. And you... These are called commercials. These are called commercials, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is called the culture industry. Yeah. Um, and you begin to leave the cave. You, get, you stumble past the fire, you get to the mouth of the cave, and you see this incredibly bright light, uh, way brighter than the fire. You can hardly look at it. It just sears your eyes. Um, cowards will, will go back. Uh, they won't deal with the pain of the brightness. But you're not a coward. Um, at least you become not a coward. And you let your eyes adjust and you venture outside the cave. And for the very first time, you see trees. You see other people. You see grass. You see horses. You see mountains in the distance. You see all these things um, that the the shadows had been imitating. 
um, crudely. You see them as they are in themselves. Uh, and it's overwhelming. It's, of course, the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And, of course, you see the sun as well, which is terrifying mm. but beautiful um, as it gives light and possibility to everything else. And so this is Plato's allegory for the true nature of reality, our reality. The thing, you know, the world we live in um, is a world of shadow. And all the things that we see um, only exist by virtue of participating in a higher realm of deeper, greater reality. So this is the painting of the tree, mm -hmm. the leaves, sui generis unto themselves. Yeah discovered to be the real yeah um as the soul is educated out of uh its self-directedness mm -hmm. to other and outward directedness yeah the uh, apprehension of the concrete real beyond mm -hmm. um me yeah yeah and i like to ask my students when they've read this story uh, whether that tree, Niggle's tree, exists in heaven because he had desired it on earth, uh, because he had, you know, imagined it and created it, hmm. or whether he had imagined and created it because it existed in heaven. Hmm. And there's, and then I say, well, we know what Tolkien would believe. Right. Um, that the latter. The, it's the latter. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, so it's this, this beautiful Catholic retelling of the allegory of the cave. Right. And so to transition to the never-ending story, mm -hmm. uh, Michael Linda, who you know, was a reader of Tolkien, uh, among many other things, um, writes this beautiful novel that tells the story of a little boy named Bastion. Bastion Balthazar Bucks? Yeah. What Bastion Balthazar Bucks. I love it. Who, the, who, when the story opens, Bastion is running from bullies, mm -hmm. and he hides in a bookstore. Uh, owned an antiquarian, an antiquarian bookstore. bookstore my favorite features. Uh, owned by a man named Carl Conrad Coriander. <laughs> Bastian Balthazar Bucks, Carl Conrad Coriander. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. So and this is the book, the antiquarian bookstore keeper owner. Yep. And Bastian, uh, chubby kid. Yeah, he's a he's a just. He's a fat little chocolate-eating German kid. <laughs> and Augustus Gloop oh, from... Absolutely, Augustus Augustus, Gloop. no! <laughs> that is exactly who he is, yeah. uh, only less cheerful. Right, um, <laughs> right. Augustus is and, obliviously content yeah. with his chocolates. Oh, my gosh, and his We're later hosen. Uh, <laughs> um, Willy Wonka, okay. So he's running from bullies. He's, he's like the, he's like the, the typical would be bullied kid. Yeah, he's is, the, the right? typical bully kid. He's sallow. He's not you yeah. know he's an unattractive, short, chubby boy. Yeah, uh, he's also not terribly intelligent. He right. does ter he does poorly in school. Hmm. Uh, his teachers don't even like him, hmm. and his father is very distant and neglectful because within the past year or two, um, Bastion's mother has died of an illness. Hmm. And his father is withdrawn into himself. And this has opened up, you know, vast distances between him and his son. And his Sebastian feels unloved. He, he's, he's the least special little boy mm. you could imagine. Mm. And 
But he is running from the bullies. He gets to the shop and has an exchange with uh, the bookkeeper. Carl Conrad Coriander. Yeah. yeah. And, and the guy, the man goes into a back room for a moment. When he does, Bastion notices this book on the table uh, with a uh, kind of this, this red silk cover. And the book's title is The Never-Ending Story. And the book draws, it calls to him. And he just has this irrepressible desire to take the book. Summons him. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is, it is summoning him hard. <laughs> and he takes it and he runs away. He steals the book. Okay. And um, he flees to school, which is late for because he knows that he can at least hide there mm. from the police. Because, of course, you steal a book, the police... The, oh, they're after you. Yeah, it's, it's over. Right. You're going to be on the lam for the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> and because the, this kid is like 10, maybe. Mm-hmm. And he gets to, gets to the school, and he goes and hides in the attic, in this creepy old attic with all these interesting things that you might find in a um, 70s creepy old German attic school Germany. attic. <laughs> German, yeah. And... And he begins reading the book, and the book tells the story of Fantastica, mm. uh, which is, for some reason, the English translation translates it as Fantastica. The, the German, I believe, is Fantasia. Which would have been much better. Uh, yeah, and in the film, it's Fantasia. Mm. And this is fairy. Yeah, this is fairy. This the, is the realm the world that is, it's Tolkien fairy. spoke of. In fairy, something awful is happening. Mm. The ruler of fairy is uh, the childlike empress, and she is sick. She's kind of this immortal-seeming, ageless girl child who oversees everything but does not control anything. She doesn't exert her will over anything. She lets everyone be as they are. And she's sick, and her sickness is tied to a disease of the land as well. That disease is called the nothing. The nothing. Capital N, nothing. And the nothing is swallowing the land. Hmm. It is, and people. And it is basically erasing Fantastica. Um, But even to say it's erasing is to say too much. The story opens with heralds coming from different areas of Fantastica to the ivory tower where the childlike empress holds court, and they're telling stories of the nothing, how looking at it is like going blind. Hmm. And they're all trying to find ways to describe it, but it's indescribable. If If you've never tried to describe nothing, or nothingness. Mm. You should give it a go. You can't. You're going to fail, but mm. the failure is instructive. Uh, even to think, you know, the first thing we go to is the vacuum of space. But a vacuum is something. The nothing is nothing. Is nothing. And so we can only think around it. Mm. We can only approach it apophatically. It's to, the absence of, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Childlike Empress sends a, a young boy, a green skin, of uh, the Great Plains, very clearly modeled after uh, the American Indian, Hmm. sends a boy named Atreyu on the Great Quest to find out what is causing the nothing and the illness of the childlike empress and bring the answer back. And so he goes on the quest, and Bastion is reading this, you know, going through all the journeys with him, and then weird things begin to happen. Bastion will you know, exclaim or shout because something creepy happens in the book and the characters in the book will hear him. And increasingly, Bastion realizes this thing is alive. It's real. This is a real place. It knows 
that I exist. It knows I'm reading about it. Mm. And and it's scary. I mean, that would be terrifying. I would sure. just, you know, they, they describe where he's at. Uh, <laughs> they describe the attic. Yes. <laughs> and, and, you know, if that wouldn't trip you out, you're not a yeah. person. Yeah. But obviously you don't stop reading that book. You can't stop. You, once once that happens, you you are like, all right, yeah, this is apparently my life now. Mm. It's irresistible. Eventually, um, Bastion learns, Atreyu learns, that the only way to save Fantastic and save the childlike Empress is to have a human give the childlike Empress a new name. Bastion comes to realize, oh, that's me. I have to do that. Mm. And they get to the point where Fantastic is basically dying. It's just about entirely erased. All he has to do is shout out the name he has chosen for the childlike Empress, which is Moonchild. Moonchild. But he won't do it because he knows that she will see him, see his fat little body, his mm. sallow skin, mm. see that he is not a Treyu, see that he is not a hero. No hero. And he eventually has to overcome this, and a crazy recursive thing happens where the childlike empress goes to another character, the old man of Wandering Mountain, who is writing the book that Bastion is reading, <laughs> and tells him, hey, this kid's not complying. You're just going to need to keep rewriting the book that he's reading. It's just going to keep going recursively into itself like a hall of mirrors until until he is willing to man up. Hmm. And, even, and his fear is that he would be seen by this one he desires, admires, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, like the... The transcendent, right? Like yeah. She is the good. She is the beautiful. Yeah. And the horror is that she would see him for what he is. Yeah. Which is unremarkable. Yeah. It isn't anything he wishes he was. And the the idea that someone would see him, someone who mm-hmm. he values and admires, would see him for what he, what he is, is too much for him to bear. In the uh, first pages of the book, and he's having his conversation with the bookkeeper, uh, the bookstore owner, and you know, tells him you know about all of his woes. The uh, the man responds, "Good Lord, a failure all along the line," <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> and that pretty much describes it. And there so it is. and so his shame isn't for nothing. But eventually, he does call out her name, mm. and he is transported there with her, mm. and he's just in a dark space, hovering, and she's there with him. And uh, as as things unfold. He learns that Fantastica is being remade from basically nothing and that he has a role in the remaking of Fantastica. And the first thing that he remakes is himself. And he becomes his ideal, uh, an attractive, swarthy skinned, not pale, you know, sallow German boy. But, you know, he looks like a, you know, a a boy Sinbad. And so he (laughs) remakes himself uh, in his ideal form. Right, what he wishes he looked like. Yeah, in his in his ideal form, his okay. ideal self. And she gives him the Orin, which is a, a talisman that bears her mark, her power. It's of a, an Ouroboros, a snake eating its own tail. Mm-hmm. And this is um, the talisman that um, Atreyu had uh, carried with him through the first part of the story. Mm-hmm. And the talisman will grant him any wish that he has. All he has to do is is desire something and it will be given to him. And he begins to remake Fantastica according to his wishes. His desires set all sorts of things into motion. Mm. Eventually he comes into contact with Atreyu and Falcor, uh, who he has longed to see. 
and uh, reveals himself to, to them as the Savior of Fantastica. Hmm. And everyone in Fantastica knows about the Savior. The Savior. But as he's making wishes, he's losing memories of his human life. Every wish he makes, he loses memories. Eventually, his friendship with Atreyu and Falcor uh, becomes tested, and they encounter a sorceress named Zaidi, who befriends Bastion in order to manipulate him. She encourages him to seek his own perfection. What she really wants is for him to keep making wishes because it's hollowing him out. Zaidi has an interesting power. Uh, she has these giants that are just suits of armor with nothing inside. They're completely hollow. And she shares that her power is that she can control anything that is hollow, mm. anything that is empty. And so she's trying to empty Bastion by making him uh, wish extravagantly and destroy the relationships he has with other people in Fantastica. So the more he gets what he desires, the more it dissolves the relationships and connection he has with the outside yeah. world and with these other beings. Yeah, and, and the more she's able to direct his desires. Right, the more uh, power she is then accorded. Yeah, eventually... Um, she gets him to desire to become emperor of Fantastica, mm. to go and either wed the, chi the childlike empress or um, dethrone her. Mm. And when he gets there uh, to the ivory tower, he, he discovers that she's gone. No one knows where she is. And so he eventually decides, well, I will crown myself emperor. Luckily, he fails. He is not able to crown himself emperor because... Atreyu returns, um, and there's a great battle, and he is not able to succeed in crowning himself. He eventually leaves and finds himself in a place called um, the City of the Old Emperors. This is like the weirdest, saddest. This is like a disorient. I mean, much of this book is very disorienting, oh, yeah. right? It's like, it feels like you're in a German Hindu story, yeah. right? Like yeah. you're in this like Indian ancient mm -hmm. Indian tale of like things within things that you can hardly yeah. keep up with. It's completely disorienting. But this part is so strange and sad. Yeah. Um, I just remember being just sort of arrested by that, that yeah. moment. It's utterly, and it's utterly beautiful. Yeah. And, and beautiful because it's so, so despairing. So he, he gets to this place, you know, which is overseen by a monkey and obviously yeah and so the monkey leads him through and shows him all the old emperors all the people who had crowned themselves emperors of fantastica mm. and and when they did so they lost all their memories of the human world which means they were no longer able to make wishes they were no longer able to desire anything so it was person after person who had been summoned from mm -hmm. the primary world from our world mm -hmm. to this same sort of uh, land this mm -hmm. this fairy um, but had succumbed to the desire to crown themselves and had in in so doing erased their memory yeah. and connection they to the primary world. They ceased to have selves. Yeah, what, uh, Tolkien's line about uh, those who escape to fantasy and mm. never return, it could yeah. be a morbid delusion. Morbid delusion. Yeah. Okay. And this is even beyond morbid delusion. Right. They don't even have language anymore. Like a, a perfect amnesia. Yeah. So that they don't remember how to speak or yeah. communicate. They they are they are perfectly empty. Uh, they are, they are no longer selves in any meaningful sense. Hollowed. Yeah, and yeah. they're trapped. 
Right. They will never leave. Right. And Bastion realizes that uh, this would have happened to him if he had crowned himself. Uh, e- eventually, you know, he, he leaves and he is beginning to understand that he needs to find a way out. Um, what do your students do at the moment like that? What do your students do with a narrative like that that is that seems to lead up to um, self glorified, right? Mm-hmm. The savior, right? Like he's there to rescue, you know, yeah. mo- so much of the cultural narrative, particularly for young people is, you know, you discover within yourself what you are mm-hmm. and then you express that you, you throw that out to the world yeah. um, to, to, I don't, to accomplish your being to mm-hmm. to prove to ennoble to celebrate yeah. uh, this unique being you've discovered you are and that life is about exerting that self in yeah. front of other people so that they can see you're proud of who you are you're you've embraced who you are you're mm-hmm. you're celebrating who you are what do they do with a narrative that seems to be going in that direction and then suddenly that that becomes very clearly the mm-hmm. most horrifying yeah. thing a person could do. Yeah, it's they they get it uh, because we yeah you know, I'm already I've already primed them you know with readings from Nietzsche and mm. and elsewhere on the will to power and what nihilism is. Right, the nothing. The nothing. Yeah. And and so they're they're primed to be on guard for this stuff. Right. You know, but by, by the time that they get it, they get to this, and the novel itself primes them as well. Right. So so earlier on they're you know, we have we have characters that express different kinds of nihilism. You know, existential nihilism, and then, you know, moral will to power nihilism. Uh, and this character, you know, this frightening werewolf character, Gamork, mm. um, who is an agent of the nothing, and he describes the nothing as you know being sent um, by the manipulators, uh, people in the human world who have vast power, and who want to destroy Fantastica, destroy Fairy. Uh, so that they can uh, more easily co-opt the desires of people in the human world mm. and make them desire things they don't desire and buy things that they don't want, um, mm. et cetera. Commercials. Yeah, commercials. <laughs> um, and and other things, yeah. and do other things like <coughs> nationalism. Mm. And wow. Yeah. Tolkien's Other Gods. Uh, yeah, that, Tolkien's that Other Gods. from our previous... Uh, discussion yeah yeah and so they've been primed um for that and then they see you know they they come to realize uh, because the text you know doesn't say this in so many words but it's obvious uh that the nothing has just gone underground Mm. and the you know in the second portion of the novel where fantastica is in bastion and he's now battling the nothing within himself what he what eventually happens is he has to not just desire to construct his self um, and as Zaidee says, to seek his own perfection. Hmm. Uh, that he, is the cultural narrative, right? Yeah. Seek your own perfection. Yeah. And I like to ask my students, define perfection. And they struggle. Because I know it's a trick question, because mm-hmm. I only give them trick right. questions. <laughs> and, and they find out, you know, like the, the best that you can be. Happiness, or, or, yeah. right, yeah. But, but what's best? Mm. Best according to who? Mm. And... And like ah, <laughs> and and so for Zadie, of course, it's you know whatever you desire, you know whatever you happen to think mm. when you think it, 
Um, so it's it's very much this impulsive will to power. Right. Driven uh, by the wind of impulse yeah. at any given moment. Yeah, it's pure, uh, ar- it's purely arbitrary. Unalloyed, unanchored, uh, anti-relational. Yeah. You're not receiving a self or an identity mm-hmm. through your connections to other people. Yeah. You're fashioning um, yeah. out of nothing. Yeah, and and that fashioning often requires breaking ties that otherwise would have defined yourself. Betrayu and Falcor, these, yep. these erstwhile companions, uh, yep. heroes mm-hmm. to him, uh, become the obstacles of his vision. Yeah, and so the, the way he, he finally finds out that he has to find his true desire um, in order to escape uh, and return. And... Um, he eventually finds himself at what's called the House of Change. Mm. And uh, the House of Change is inhabited by Dame Iola, which, who is basically a living vegetable. Um, you know, she's, she's just sprouts fruit to feed Bastion <laughs> uh, from her body. Mm. And, you know, she is, she is the ultimate mother. Mm. Um, she is, she's kind of mother nature, um, all the things, Mm. but she is, you know, nourishment incarnate or nurturing incarnate. And Bastion, you know, recognizes that he's just been longing for his mom Mm. who he's lost and he just needs to be loved by a mother. And, and while he's there, while he's just recuperating from his journeys, and being filled up with this woman's love, he begins to discover what his desire is. And his, his true desire is that he wants to be able to love. Hmm. And having been loved by this woman enables him to recognize that. Eventually he leaves, and, and he needs to be able to find you know, that... You know, he, he's trying to find that desire still. It's not perfectly crystallized in his mind. Uh, he finds himself in a place called uh, Yours Minrude. Uh, the subtitle of the section of the novel is The Picture Mine. And, uh, you, and you learn in this section that uh, sedimented deep, you know, into, you know, the foundations of this world, Fantastica, are human dreams and aspirations and desires. Um, and, and so this character is mining these, these beautiful, almost like stained glass window panes mm. of these images of things that people desire. And then he lays them out in this field um, to look at. And so Bastion has to find the image, you know, that is his desire and that is his desire to love. And, and he's looking through them. And very interestingly, um, some of the images that are described, um, come from the paintings done by Michael Enda's father, Edgar Enda, hmm. who was a surrealist artist um, whose work was suppressed by the Nazis and even destroyed by them. Wow. So there, there, there are these deeply personal um, elements of this novel uh, that you would never know if you, if you didn't read about this man's life. Hmm. Eventually, Bastion finds the right picture. That's his picture. And it's of a, a lonely, forlorn man making dental casts, like dental molds in a lab. 
and and we know we knew earlier from very early in the novel that his, his fa- this is what his father does mm. but he he no longer has memories and of the human world he doesn't know who his father is but he's drawn to this picture and he knows it's for him and he wants to know why this man is so sad and as the as the end of the story unfolds um, in order to leave fantastica he has to go and find the water of life and drink the water of life and bring it to someone else. Hmm. And at the end, you know, that, you know, it's, a, I mean, it's obvious that there's so many just beautiful, uh, symbolic, uh, plays that are done here. So the, uh, the heart of Fantastica, you know, the, there are no borders to Fantastica. Um, but the borders are inside Fantastica hmm. and Bastion, you know, finally, you know, goes to this place and, and it's the Oren, you know, it's this Ouroboros medallion. So two giant, like, you know, world-encompassing big snakes um, um, biting each other's tails. And inside there's a fountain, which is the water of life. And he can only leave if he's bringing the water of life to somebody else. And he brings it to his father. And the the novel ends with him restored to sonship Mm. um so in 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 tolkien's um in tolkien's telling you know of what the the fantasy story should do and what the fairy tale should do you know you escape into the secondary world in order to be changed (laughs) you even have a house of change (laughs) in this Mm -hmm. novel um so that you can recover a proper vision of your relationship to the world and to the people in your world. And, and so his recovery is of a proper vision of himself and of his father. So he had escaped the brokenness, uh, the distance um, of his relationship with his dad. And when he returns home, he, he returns and brings his father the water of life mm. um, by loving him. Mm. And, and his father reciprocates. And his, Bastion's renewed vision of his father um, transforms his father's vision of his son. Hmm. And, and it's just so beautiful. It and, is beautiful. And just heartbreaking. And I told you when I, when I got to that point, I wasn't expecting it. Mm-hmm. I, I should have, but wasn't expecting it to end where it did. And... And that it struck me it had been a long, long time since I had read a story about a father and a son. Yeah. Those are not stories that are being told mm-hmm. that much anymore. I think they're thought of as having too many landmines or being too conventional or I, I'm not sure what yeah. that is, but Well, no, there there are reasons. It's so I it was amazing how it startled me with um, you know, this young boy, um, unremarkable um, and this relationship with his father being restored in, and there was lines and descriptions of those last scenes that were so tender mm-hmm. that, you know, I I was, I was reading the books so that I could tell you, I read the, finally mm-hmm. read the book, you know, I was just like, oh, I'd never had, you know, whatever. Um, and I just remember being, you know, like it, it was the you catastrophe moment mm-hmm. Tolkien talks about where your breath is almost caught. Yeah. And you know, I can be as meta as, as you mm-hmm. about 
literature, writing, craft, mm-hmm. stories, whatever, right? And it can be hard sometimes to be lost yeah. in it and actually go to fairy and yeah. come back because you're tracking it so much or yeah. you're, how would I teach this or yeah. you're teaching it, yeah. you know? Um, and it was, I, at that point I, I was, I was finally or fully immersed mm-hmm. and was caught off guard yeah. by the grace mm-hmm. of, I think him sitting in the kitchen with his father, mm-hmm. um, in just the simplest and tenderest way of a father and son being able to show mm-hmm. their love for each other that it just like, yep. it, it got me, it got yeah. me. I started thinking about being, you know, <laughs> I, I moved out at 17, you know, yeah. and, uh, the was closer to my father probably when I was younger than, mm-hmm. than when I was a teenager. And, and, you know, it was just such a, it was, it was, it was, as Tolkien says, uh, um, poignant as grief. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was beautiful yeah. and it was grace and it was joy. We all need recovery. We yeah. all need recovery of sight. And, you know, in a novel like this will impact different people differently. Right. Um, you know, you might recover different things, you know, as a variation of that theme. But to, you know, to wax really philosophical again. Oh, please. And we'll, and we'll conclude with. Yeah. <laughs> so so this, this story also operates like Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle. Um, it operates as a you know as an extended allegory of the cave mm. and, and and it's very clear that uh that michael enda intends this um i mean that very near the end you know we have the scene in a mine in in, right. a, in a cave right. and then leaving the cave you know he leaves into the fullness of reality right you know it, it's very very lovely um one of the ways that I understand this novel and the place of Fantastica is that Fantastica itself, it's not just fairy, it itself is the cauldron of story. Hmm. And you know this in a number of different ways. Uh, you know, you, you have characters from other, other you know, famous stories and mythology, like uh, Chiron the, the centaur mm-hmm. is a character mm-hmm. and who's been repurposed for a different story. And you have all these, these, these cute little nods, right. you know, where... It, you feel like the story could take a certain direction, and then uh, then the narrator says, "But that is another story, and shall be told another time." Right. <laughs> uh, very very clever. But something that's beautiful about this book is that it teaches you how to read fairy stories. Mm. Um, you identify with Bastion, and and then his experience of reading um, is, you know, you are vicariously reading a book through a character and experiencing a world through a character. And it teaches you that you should be having this experience of escape and recovery. Hmm. And it's really interesting to, to look at how this plays out or how this would have played out for Inda's um, original audience, you know, published in 1979 in West Germany. Hmm. And so Michael Inda was a, he was a reactionary against everything. Hmm. And, even though I don't don't like that word, uh, I think reaction should be your normal stance to life. Mm. Um, and but he, you know, he I mean he was raised by Bohemians, and so he naturally was drawn to left political movements initially. Um, but then, 
uh, drifted away from that as the, the sexual revolution began to really hit hard um, in, in West Germany after, um, you know, it, it, in response to like a delayed response to um, Nazism um, and this false narrative that Nazism came out of repressed sexuality, mm-hmm. um, that all these, you know, tight-laced Germans, you know, didn't do their thing enough, and so they had to turn to violence. Right. Um, just insane um, Freudian nonsense. But uh, a lot of people believe this. So West Germany opens up to Western markets, really embraces consumerism, mm. um, and then so, you know, the left doesn't like consumerism, and and so we have this this interesting reaction to, you know, the, the legacy of World War II, legacy of Nazism, and and the new consumerism, uh, which are all expressions of nihilism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a reaction against that that tries to treat sex, radical sex, as liberation um, from the oppression of, you know, the capitalist present and the fascist past. Um, but Enda saw very quickly, this is also nihilism. This is just a consumerism applied to the human body. Right. And, you know, and, and we, we look back on the, the sexual revolution here, you know, as this like mixed thing, you know, where, um, you know, you know, flower childs, you know, hippy dippy stuff where it's kind of bright and, you know, Beatles-y. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but in West Germany, uh, even diseases aside, um, the revolution hit way harder than it did here. Mm. And particularly in the, in the form of pedophilia, mm. um, where uh, there was an actual, like, serious effort at what people considered child sexual liberation. And, and so this, this, was a, this was something you would know about uh, during this time period uh, if you were just in the culture. Uh, you'd know that this was happening, that there were these communes where, you know, lefty people would go and live together and they have sex with their children um, and encourage their children to do erotic play, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like Brave New World. Yeah, it's, it's, it's Brave New World. Yeah. And, and so this stuff is in the air and Michael Linda is reacting hard against that. Uh, he knows that his young readers have very real horrors that they should want to escape hmm. and must escape. And divorce um, has blossomed during this time in a really tremendous way um, because of the sexual revolution. And families are breaking apart. Um, the idea of mothers and fathers is called into question. You know, the, the attempt to dismantle the, the natural family. And so this novel... Um, provides an escape and and then its principal reorientation to the world the way fairy changes you um, if you're reading along with bastion is that it makes you love your dad Mm. it makes you long for that perfect connection to your parents and so it's this you know you you don't see it unless you know you know the the context Mm. Uh, but it's this this profound expression uh, of a yearning for um, the proper relationship between parent and child mm. um, in a way that is profoundly countercultural. 
the rebellion of the true patriot. Yeah. Um, going against everything in that moment to recover um, the good. And we're going to close here. And I know some of that, obviously, especially if you weren't expecting it, um, is, is pretty disturbing stuff. Um, in the same way Snow White got disturbing earlier in a different episode. But it is to the point that Tolkien describes the role of fairy stories, of which the story of Jesus is the the ultimate, Mm -hmm. Um, which is to say uh, it's true. And all other stories take their cues from it, um, even in hindsight, Mm -hmm. right? Um, having been the inner reality of all things. Um, but the need mm-hmm. for a truer story than the world in which we find ourselves, the need to escape home, mm-hmm. um, I mean, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is yeah. what it means to go to church, to enter into worship and time in the scripture, to enter into a place, the kingdom of God, that is mm-hmm. already and not yet to be sent back to these prisons, uh, seeing them for what mm-hmm. they are, escaping yeah. from them, seeing the corruption of what was good and what was you God's. Can't, you can't love yourself uh, without loving others. And, and and the love of the other is prior to love of self. Right. Um, and, you know, and that's, that's such a countercultural message. Right. Um, you know, that is the antithesis of pursue your own perfection. Right. And the two greatest commandments, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your mm-hmm. neighbor as yourself. Um, that we would need um, the courage, mm-hmm. um, the time, and the care to to regularly leave. Mm-hmm in order to return, yeah. right? That that would be what prayer, what time in the word, what what anything, um, that anything that we are meant to be up to just as, as believers, as followers of Jesus, mm-hmm. and that you're saying, you know, the stories of the world, you know, the, the fairy tales, the stories mm-hmm. we, we tell ourselves and the desires we, we strain toward but wonder if they're too good to be true, mm-hmm are all of this cauldron, all of this great mm-hmm. web um, whose heart and center is the incarnation, yeah. the death and the resurrection of Jesus, um, mm-hmm. the readoption to the family of God, reunited yeah. with our Heavenly Father in that perfect communion that is so poignantly captured in mm-hmm. the end of this story. Any true fairy story, any true you know work of, of literary art, yeah you know, should reject in a profound uh, way. Pursue your own perfection. Mm. You do you. Mm. Don't do you. Don't, <laughs> don't do... <laughs> whatever you do. There, whatever you do, don't do that. <laughs> have you ever seen you? Well, and, you know, this is like... It's like when they have really uh, young kids in grade school and they tell them to write a story and they tell them to be creative. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing yet there to be creative with. Yeah. They haven't r- learned enough... And so they start to just repurpose bits of things mm-hmm. without any co- real coherence. Mm-hmm. But it just shows you, like, 
what do you think you is? What do you think they yeah. are? You know, like they are their their connections to this world, to their mm-hmm. other relationships. Like what we are is not this invisible, discrete self somewhere inside, right? Yeah. You have never had a desire that was yours. <laughs> On that note, we will end our uh, <laughs> our discussion of the never-ending story. And as Tolkien says, no true fairy tale ever ends. Um, thank you for joining us, Justin. And I hope we will be able to continue this conversation uh, another day. My friends, as we near the end of season one of this podcast project, we are wondering if there is enough interest and investment, frankly, in our listeners who want to hear a season two. If you are interested in this going forward into a second season, we would ask that you would visit the website from BabylonWithLove.com. Click on the donate button for a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation. We would hugely appreciate that, and it would also help us to make that decision about planning and preparing for season two. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe, and your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.